Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Greetings, comrades, and welcome to the Eastern Border. We are, after a long while, back to our longer episodes here. Anatta will actually plug in our theme song. Haven't played that in a long while because of the recent events. But of course, well, this show, just like every other show on this channel until the war ends, is going to be about exactly that, the war. And today we are joined by Anthony Barthaway, the host of Ukraine Without Hype podcast. He's a journalist. An American journalist, if I'm not mistaken, I hope you're not British or Canadian, uh, who now lives in and works in Ukraine. So, please, Anthony, introduce yourself to my um, my glorious comrades, or or something. I don't know, man. This is just uh, yeah. So, like you said, my name's Anthony. I have lived in Ukraine for the previous seven maybe eight years who even knows time but yeah i'm a journalist i have previously worked in television here i have written a few things but i'm not that big of a deal and currently i my main gig is hosting ukraine without hype a podcast from well currently from vinitsa uh used to be out of kiev but uh, on the ground so it were and uh, yes, American, but from the Detroit area, so the Canadian people are quite close to me. I'm really, really happy to have you on because, of course, people, once once I get back to the ground, yes, I will look out for Anthony and I will find him and I have to meet him in person. That is mandatory. But um, the main reason why we're here is the fact that um, specifically after what happened in the last few days, after we, we saw all the horrible war crimes and everything... What really kind of stunned me is the fact that um, I knew that this was happening. And probably you knew that as well. It's just that we didn't have documentation, didn't have the pictures. But but it's kind of hard to... And this kind of ties into this. I, I'm, just, I'm just seeing Western reports that they're shocked about actions of Russia. They were also shocked about the, the invasion. They seem to be constantly shocked about Russia doing things that... Uh, People from Ukraine or, or the Baltics or Eastern Europe are generally telling them, no, look, this is what Russia is going to do. Hey, look, 
seriously. And then, then everyone in the West says, oh, no, we're so shocked. This surprises me. Why do you think it is? Uh, a lot of it just seems because uh, Russia has been looked at as this, um, you know, the civilized partner, even if it was a bit, you know, of a rival or a bit hostile, it was always treated as something that was at least part of their world, which honestly, uh, Ukraine, the Baltic states, Moldova was not treated as an equal in the same way. So I think a lot of it just becomes from familiarity. Um, on some level, people want to think of Russia as this responsible partner in a way, even when its actions have not proved to be the case. And you're saying, like, if I may have known about this case specifically, and yeah, um, I had actually received a tip from a friend of a friend that it was happening, well, these massacres were happening not in Bucha specifically, but in two other towns north of Kiev, further north of Bucha, that about two weeks ago, I was told that they were massacring, you know, the male population of these towns. I, I agree with you here, because I also have my own sources uh, in Ukraine and, and in Russia, too, mm -hmm. since I'm already joking that I run a small agency. But currently in Russia, 10 euros gets you in a lot of places. So thank you, patrons. You're, you're funding bribes. It's fine. But uh, the, the thing is, <laughs> you know, often I've, I've, I've faced this issue where I explain something about Soviet Union or Russia, and, and people just go, it's too crazy. It can't happen. Mm. People are posting on Twitter... Uh, after real news that has happened, it's like, this sounds too crazy to be believed. And yes, it does. Often it does. That's the whole point. Doesn't the idea that, uh, that Zelensky, who used to be a comedian, got elected president sound crazy to you? Mm -hmm. I, I don't know how to break this atmosphere of, of people just thinking inside their own cultural bubble, I suppose, about, about this region. I think you have noticed this too, but like, do you have any advice on this to our listeners, maybe? Oh, it's. You'd think after trying to do this exact thing for as long as I have, I would have a better idea of how to communicate cultural needs to Americans better. And honestly, it's it's quite hard, just because it's such an unknown region. You know, think about high school history classes. We might have studied a bit of the history of France, maybe Germany, definitely England, but anything east of the Oder-Neisse line is. Uh, might as well be no man's land, just complete mystery and hope you figure it out later. So there's not even the baseline level understanding that someone might know. I guess if you were a Paradox Entertainment Games player, you'd know what the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth is or something like that. But other than <laughs> Precisely. So I there's not the base that you can build off of. Uh, people might know a little bit about that, you know, China exists. People might know a little bit that Japan exists or they know that France did X, Y, Z things. I have like a deep understanding, but we're able to get that uh, just broad overview that you would from, from formal education or pop culture that absolutely disappears as soon as you go East. Just trying to build from there. You have to connect on it. Like, um, I've been working a lot with, say, Holocaust education, and that is easier to do um, in that people know what the Holocaust is. People know what World War II is, which was what makes it much easier to talk about in that case. But it's hard to collapse the entirety of the culture and the entirety of the history down to this like, very ultimately short time span that 
lacks context either going back or going forward. Sadly, I know exactly what you're talking about because I think I mentioned this on the early episodes of the show, but I started my Eastern border because I wanted someone from the local area to explain all this mess to Westerners. Mm-hmm. And uh, my show started because I was posting on Dan Carlin's forums. But what really pushed me to it was that I listened to Slate's Political Gabfest. And they had a lady on, like, back in 2014. I don't remember her name at all. There was this lady who was invited in as Russia and Eastern European expert. And that was already great because in her credentials, she had, like, studied for a year in Moscow and a half a year in St. Petersburg. (laughs) But in Moscow, she had lived in Rublyovka. That's common, yeah. Uh, To those of you who don't know, that's like, I know United States of America. I have spent six months living in Times Square. Mm-hmm. approximately that okay it's the, the 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 poshest region ever and then i decided that no one's doing this so i'm really really thankful for your show when i started this show out there was like no one out there who who knows about this whole situation but now i guess it falls on to us to actually explain things because recently i've noticed that if i if i follow the news and i follow updates daily then like my ukrainian sources and russian sources post something i translate this into english and I post about it on Twitter or Teleton on my show. And then two days later, you get a hot take from New York Times. Yeah, my my podcast uh, making partner, uh, Romeo, uh, he made a tweet recently saying, in response to some some memo that came out in the US saying, if you wanted to hear us say this exact same thing a month earlier, then here's here's what we did. Oddly enough, an episode we made of April last year, it was during the initial buildup that they were doing along the border. So in our episode from last, I want to say April, we had been talking about the Russian military buildup at that time. And we basically said what we think a war with Russia would look like, the broad, larger invasion would look like. And honestly, we got it almost precisely right. <laughs> in hindsight, it's kind of obvious what they would have done. There's only have so many options, but we've been harping on this for literally a year and seeing all these people, you know, inside the beltway in the big media production houses in New York and London act so stunned and surprised that this happened. It's like, who were you talking to? Are your sources just like, you know, Moscow intelligentsia who had just digged their head in the sand and hope that everything stays normal for as long as possible. And, the answer is yeah. Like they, they seek out their sources. They find them amongst the Moscow intelligentsia middle classes, who are very Pollyanna about everything that doesn't immediately affect them. I'm lucky because I live two blocks away from Medusa. Oh yeah, of course. the the uh, the Russian uh, the Russian guys who move to Riga exilees exilees are split between Riga and Prague and. For a while in Kiev, less so now. Yeah, I know. Like, I got lucky. I'm right now trying to contact Deutsche Welle, since they also moved to Riga. But my position in Riga, well, makes me well positioned to get all the news, because I go to the same bars as those journalists, and we hang out. So Right, yeah. That also, by the way, is a pro tip for listeners. If you ever need someone who speaks English in a foreign country, go to the local newspaper. You'll find someone. Mm-hmm. I can assure you. And they will help you. 
the local newspaper, if you're a foreigner, will actually go and uh, aid you and they'll go out of your way to help you because you're a news story. And every city has its haunts where these types of people will hang out. I can think of, you know, a handful of bars yep. that all the journalists go to, where the Belarusian dissidents go to. Like, there's there's places to go. Yeah. We are now revealing the secrets of our profession, sir. Uh, alcoholism, it turns out. <laughs> alcoholism, insane amounts of coffee. Um, I used to smoke. Now I use that uh, white chew nicotine stuff. <laughs> Which, by the way, you have to tell me. Do you have that thing in Ukraine? I think so. I don't smoke, so I don't really know the ins and outs of it here. But I'm pretty sure, yeah. So I used to smoke, but I, I quit. Now I just don't want to restart again. But yeah, the important part here is the fact that um, I'm actually stunned by the fact that a lot of experts that are in these mainstream media magazines, they are more likely from the 90s. And a lot of them have been like, oh, I've shaken hands with Shoigu, with Putin himself. And yeah, you did that in the early 2000s. And I just don't understand that at all. One thing, though, that really made me worried and interested about, and which I got a lot of flack for, especially when I went to uh, Martyr Made podcast, Daryl Cooper's show. Oh, no, it was just so crazy because I got so much hate for the fact that I'm apparently now a neo-Nazi. Because apparently Ukraine's full of Nazis. Well, sir, you are from the United States of America. You hate Nazis more than everything. Could you please fucking tell those people about the Ukrainian Nazis, because I'm tired. So I readily identify as a leftist and an anti-fascist. I have been following every little every little thing that these people do for the last eight years, Azov, uh, right sector, a tradition, order, all these people. I'm at their protests. I'm at their counter-protests when there's an LGBT thing going on. I have trained jujitsu with several of them, uh, I I know these people. I know what they're doing. It is absolutely maddening to have that thrown back into my face that I'm suddenly a Nazi supporter because I'm opposed to the genocide of the Ukrainian people. So, Well, let me just say this first. There are, of course, radical idiots. Of course, that are there. But honestly, uh, I don't believe that even the majority of the Azov battalion are actual Nazis. I'd say about half of them, about half of them you could call right wing, a far right in some way. The other half don't care. Um, yeah, because it was, they're like the guys with guns who stand against Russia right now. So uh, it's, it's weird, okay? But I think they're not the most popular party in Ukraine, which has changed five presidents. No, sorry, six ones, while Putin has remained in power all the time, so. There has only ever been one president who won re-election in the entirety of Ukrainian history, Kuchma. The rest all lost. We recycle our politicians with great regularity. But more on – so Azov, um, before we drift on Kuchma. That hurts me physically since I trust Alexander Yevzorov. I read his book on journalism. I respect him. He doesn't speak English. Therefore, he's unknown in the Western world. He's kind of like the Hunter S. Thompson of the, of the Russian-speaking world. His book on how to be a good journalist is called How to Insult People. <laughs> Just understood, okay? He's literally the most trusted source that I have. And if he says that he received a letter from the Azov explaining them, and therefore I will give you that letter. Just, just saying, because, okay. For even translating that letter and giving them a voice, I was called a neo-Nazi. 
Therefore, I want to go through this Azov thing as much as we can. Of course. So when they started off, it was founded by Andrei Beletsky, a guy who I would say, yes, is a neo-Nazi. He has said some horrific things in the past about, you know, the white race and the Jews, all that stuff. Then 2014 happens and they become – so the army essentially had been sold for scrap throughout the entirety of Ukrainian independence, especially during the Yanukovych era, to the point where when the war began, it practically did not exist. And in order to defend Ukraine from the Russian invasion, there was all these volunteer groups who formed together. Some of them were combat units. Some of them just ran supplies. But the volunteer movement was what saved the country. Um, some of them had far-right ideology behind them. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Most did not. I know uh, left-wingers and anarchists who joined many of these these units, especially Nipro attracted a lot of the left, but that's kind of off the point. But Azov, they distinguished themselves in the defense of Mariupol. Now, uh, some of, I'd say the uh, PR was a bit behind their backs at, at point where other people did not get the credit they deserved. But point being, Azov kind of walked out of the retaking of Mariupol, which had been held by pro-Russian Russian intelligence-backed militants of this or that variety. Oh, I want to say a, a month. There's a period of time where the city was contested, including by uh, local cops who, who became turncoats. And because Azov was able to at least portray itself as the saviors of the city, which was probably one of the most important battles of that war, along with Slovyansk, they were able to gain this massive status. And so if you wanted to join a unit that seemed to know what it could do, that had the equipment to give to you, Azov was not a terribly bad choice. Now, for a while, they were able to operate independently, but very, very early on, the uh, Ukrainian government through the Ministry of the Interior was able to bring all these volunteer units into a centrally organized government position, and they all became at least officially depoliticized. And when this happened, a lot of the original, I guess you'd say, political operatives from its independence era left the unit because they – I just don't think they wanted to be told what to do. And they went into localizing as political figures essentially. 
from that point on, the Azov Battalion continued to receive training from the broader Azov movement, which is, you know, the Azov Regiment plus the civilian political organizations formed by the same people. There is always a level of debate over how close uh, the Azov Regiment and the civilian political side were. It wasn't zero, but it also wasn't total. It was somewhere in between. But it was always acted under the command of the Ukrainian government after that point and at least officially was depoliticized. Meanwhile, they, the civilian side formed the National Corps and a bunch of, you know, splinter organizations that were more or less attached to the Azov movement, whether or not you'd want us to consider them part of it. Some of these were definitely more extreme than others. A National Corps tried to portray itself as just a, basically a youth movement. Like they had a cool clubhouse. They really avoided the darker side of their politics. It was still there, but they really wanted to make sure that that wasn't what people associated with them with. They really kind of hid it underneath. Honestly, most of most of these people, part of this movement, were teenagers. Um, some of them were described to me as, you know, the, the C student types who might not have been uh, outstanding in other fields, but they would go to this clubhouse that would you know, they had good MMA clubs, they had a good gym, like animal welfare uh, branch where you would help out uh, rescue dogs. Well, let me let me explain that part. Animal welfare is super important here because that's a Soviet tradition. That is very Soviety because of how all of our protests for independence started from the Green Movement. If you remember that one, the Gulf of Botnia is totally damaged. So it's kind of in our genes to care about animals a lot. Yeah, I've seen them doing like forest cleanups. Like in Latvia, sorry to interrupt you, but like in Latvia, we have two official uh, national holidays per year where all that we do is go out to our forests and clean them up. Yeah, it's wonderful. <laughs> it's the thing because, like, this is what we do. Because I know Ukraine is tons and tons of farmland, and they have a lot of forest and everything. So, yeah, people just do activities. As far as I know, I don't know. Of course, there are some Nazis, but uh, I think I'll be hard-pressed to find Nazis in Odessa. I mean, they're there, but not, 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 not in large numbers. Nazis in Odessa probably get beat up by local Jews anyway. So. <laughs> yeah, Odessa's a Jewish town. That's ours. But uh, <laughs> I, I am Jew enough to say that Odessa, where I'm going, is, uh, is a great place. It has a monument to Osta Bender, and if mm-hmm. you haven't read Ilfan Petrov's 12 Chairs... Shame on you. Do that. It's amazing. Go to the Moldavanka and just absorb Jewish-speaking Russian history. Dude, dude, I've... Uh, to explain Odessa to, to my listeners, because I have to inject some humor in this. I have a joke from Odessa for this. This comes straight from Odessa from my listeners, so if anyone yells at me for anti-Semitism, no, this comes from Odessa Jews, just like 90% of Odessa Jewish jokes. So, um... Abramovich walks down the street and, and sees a store where where his friend is just clapping on the entry, we don't sell milk and meat to Jews. Then he goes and says, hey, Yoske, you're just as much Jew as I am. What the hell are you doing? And he responds, well, have you tried my milk? It's awful. Why would I sell it to Jews? <laughs> that's, that's about right, yeah. That, yeah. that is Ashkenazi humor for you. This is, this is what it is. Odessa is the city 
that you ran away to when everything else was too boring. That's what Odessa is. It was the city that grew up around mobsters and comedians and actors and just various outcasts. And it's still basically a mob town. The The mayor there, uh, Tiranov, is not a uh, nice fellow. I'm pretty sure he has murdered some with his bare hands at some point or another. But that's actually part of why it's being so defended right now. And this is an important point is that the people of Odessa are extreme patriots for Odessa. For Odessa. <laughs> I am from Riga. Mm-hmm. I am going to Odessa. I will be in Odessa site for at least a month. Yeah, I hope things are still open there for you, because that's a great city. <laughs> I definitely want to see there, because um, seeing today how things were bombed with, with all the situation is putting my hopes down. But you know what? Who cares? For one, uh, I know that there's a certain thing that we Eastern Europeans do. When things get tough, we get funny. All Russian language humor originates in Odessa. <laughs> At least 90% of I attest to this. I attest to this. If you have heard uh, Russian Soviet political joke on my show, it comes from Odessa. By the way, I- I've noticed one interesting thing, because in modern days, they uh, literally take out Abramovich, a central character of these jokes, and they just replace it with a Moscow man. Abramovich is Jewish. Oh, no. They got rid of Abramovich? I thought it would just be because there's a very particular Abramovich that you don't want to be uh, too attached to. Well, of course, I think. But like, like now they're telling the joke about the, the newspaper with the obituary on the first page. And that's not Abramovich anymore because I think it might offend some Jews. Look, my grandma was Jewish. I don't claim to be Jewish enough. But uh, I can pretty much attest to you that no no Ashkenazi will get offended for Soviet jokes that originated in Odessa. Like, none of them. Because those jokes are not offensive to Jews. They're made up by Jews, yeah. They're made up by Jews. They are owned by the Jewish people. That is, that is their cultural heritage of post-Soviet Jews, Odessa jokes. That is why I, I, I followed Odessa since the first day of the invasion, and uh, mm-hmm. I just loved it. I loved how that hadn't lost its spirit. For example, there was this poster on the wall that stated that, Welcome to Ukraine! We give you free cocktails! <laughs> That was just amazing. And and the best thing happened when I was sent a picture, which was like, you know, those tank hedgehogs that they put in places now. Mm-hmm. And one of them said, kosher hedgehogs from the Jews of Odessa. <laughs> yeah, it's, there's there's a bunch of them. Like uh, the Dnipro Jewish community as well has really organized. I have another one because I'm, I'm very sorry. I'm just sick or depressed today. So I have to inject some humor here. Um, <laughs> it has to be done. It has to be done. This is a modern political joke. Again, from Odessa. Of course it's from Odessa. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, Abramovich gets gets a call. Oh, and, and Russian soldiers arrive, and, and they're like, oh, you are a fascist. You support Zelensky. You are all, you are all neo-Nazis. And Abramovich is like, yeah, yeah, we all with the whole synagogue. <laughs> Hello there, and thanks for listening to another episode of The Eastern Border. Dear Patreons, thank you more than ever for supporting our show. Your donations are crucial to keep us going, and right now all of your money is going to securing good information for you and to fund Kristov's actual real-life mission to Ukraine to report to you live about the war that is going on there. 
Also, we would like to use this opportunity to urge you to donate to other organizations that are helping people escape Ukraine safely and to defend the country for those who decide to stay on the ground. One such organization we would like to highlight is the Defending Ukraine Together Come Back Alive movement. Launched in 2014, the Come Back Alive became the biggest organization providing support to the armed forces of Ukraine. You can donate directly from their webpage, comebackalive.in.ua. Remember that no donation is too small. In this situation, every dollar matters. Every cent matters. If you're uncomfortable with giving money to war, they do have a position on their website that they are providing Ukrainian army with laptops, lights, photo equipment, cables, and is not purely military. Perhaps that might change your mind, but remember you can also donate to strictly humanitarian organizations such as the Red Cross and others that are helping people escape Ukraine safely. Please also keep following us on social media for all of your latest updates on Eastern Border on places like Twitter and Facebook. Keep listening, keep yourself informed. That's all from me now. See you online. Well, if you listen to the Ukrainian uh, Russian propaganda from the very start of the war, we're all a bunch of gay Jew Nazis. Uh, and they managed to twist it all together into a single bad guy. Like, pick one. Dude, that's the thing. When I previously told on my show that there are only Nazis in Western Europe, there are gay Nazis, Jew Nazis, liberal Nazis, Western Nazis, pasta-eating Nazis, I don't know, football-playing Nazis, uh, Nazi Nazis, everyone's a Nazi. And people didn't believe me. Because for the Russians, they are the only anti-fascists in the world. I completely presume that they would treat you as an anti-fascist Nazi. Yeah, of course. Uh, I mean, I'm already Jewish and they hate that. Uh, I mean, I'm a leftist. They hate that. Which is paradoxical because, uh, yeah, they, they hate the Western left as well. And uh, when, when you present news from Russia to someone who is at least somewhat reasonable, they just don't believe you. The problem here is is they don't understand that when a Russian says Nazi, they don't mean the same thing. Uh, they see – the only sin uh, that the Nazis did was invade Russia. Everything else is kind of a detail in that. Killing Jews? Totally okay. Hating on gay people? Absolutely fucking amazing. Invading Russia? That's a big boo-boo. Look at what was happening in the immediate aftermath of the war. What was Stalin supposed to say? Like, it's bad to slaughter entire ethnicity of people as he does it to the Chechens and the Ingush and the Tatars and... <laughs> the Latvians before the war. like Thank you for remembering us. <laughs> they can't take a qualified stance against ethnic cleansing when they're in the middle of doing that and saying that the reason was okay is because these are internal enemies of the Soviet people. They can't treat it like that. So it has to be that the purpose, the, the reason that the Nazis were bad was only, only because they attacked Russia. And if you look at, say, I, I've been to the siege museum, the Leningrad siege museum in St. Petersburg. And you would see these, you know, frescoes and art and displays where they very much treated the Nazis as just another Western invasion. They compared it to Napoleon, the Teutonic Knights against Alexander Nevsky. It was considered a part of a continuous historical uh, movement of the West attacking Russia. That was the worst part about this whole whole discussion. I have to facepalm all the time because for me and you, those are obvious truths. But I've I've spent like 
since 2014, about eight years explaining this to Western people and they still don't understand it. That's the number one thing, because, look, to my listeners, you all know this already, but maybe you'll share this podcast to someone who's new to this whole situation. When people like me or Anthony are telling you, please listen to the people who live in these parts, we know what's up, maybe you sort of should. Why? Because we, we know this stuff, and this hurts me the most. This situation, well, I can just congratulate you, because... Ukraine after the war is going to be, uh, I think I think there's going to be a Marshall Plan 2.0 and Ukraine's going to get rebuilt. I know that I shall help in this process because uh, one thing that I have to explain to my listeners is the fact that there is a real post-Soviet unity, at least with everyone who is not Russia, because uh, Ukrainians haven't invaded us. This whole idea of unity seems kind of nice. But we started this conversation about predictions about Russia, and I wanted to to get on this because... The economical situation is dire there. And right now, Kuril's are being claimed by Japan once again. And I personally believe that as soon as any reforms whatsoever pass or Putin leaves power in any way or form, Chechnya will not be a part of Russia. It cannot be done. Just as soon as Ramzan Kadyrov is gone, Chechnya is out. I used to believe that either Russia will turn into the world's largest North Korea or it will turn into nothing because I believe and claim that it's a colonial empire. You know, just like the British Empire, except its colonies are just stuck to it in its land form. Basically, the Moscow and St. Petersburg are the metropolis, and everywhere else is the colonies. That, that's how I view Russia, personally. And, and I believe it's going to fall apart. It, it, it's pretty much unavoidable in my eyes. What do you think? Yeah, so in that way, that that is a very common way of looking at Russia right now. It's being more and more seen as in imperial center versus the imperial periphery and at the moment that's mostly being uh said by you know ukrainian belarusian baltic uh caucasian central asian scholars to try to put it within a larger like post-colonial framework the same way that scholars would look like at africa for example but yes this point of the Russian Federation itself being an empire also needs to be examined more. So you started as a history podcast, so it's easier for me to uh, kind of get a bit wonkish with with going back in time and all that. But mm-hmm. when Russia is being formed, like the whole idea of calling it Russia was to stake a claim on what is now Belarus and Ukraine, to say that it is the legitimate inheritor of the legacy of Kiev and Rus. Let me self-promote here. I literally wrote about this in Foreign Policy magazine, which you can check out. <laughs> of course. Talking about this, by the way. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Because uh, when Putin made his nonsense speech about his historical stuff, mm-hmm. foreign policy calls me up that night and tells me, hey, dude, our translators are just translating this and this makes no sense. You have until 6 a.m. in the morning to translate historical parts. <laughs> and I'm like... 
what the fuck, guys? Six. Okay, as as of someone who's done plenty of freelance work, that sounds like an awful time scale to work on. But yeah, right. from ten a.m. from 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 ten p.m. to six a.m. I literally, oh. if you look up my article on Foreign Policy magazine about the historicity of Putin's speech, I did that in eight hours. And I, I, I don't remember the next day because I probably went on a drinking binge because my argument consists of, okay, so Putin claims this, but this has nothing to do with Donbass. And then he claims this, which is bullshit, and also has nothing to do with Donbass. And also, I want to die now because he makes no sense, and this also has nothing to do with Donbass. Yeah, none of it... <sighs> Yeah, my heart goes out to you. That sounds miserable. But, but yeah, the the issue there is it began as an imperial identity in order to justify the conquest of other regions. Let me let me explain this. Belarus means white Russia. Ukraine is uh, well, they call it Ukraine and there's a lot of issues about the mm-hmm. the origin of the word, but how Russians call Ukraine are Malorossi or sometimes Novorossi. The, the, the little Russians. The little Russians. Yes, they Russia sees Ukrainians as a, a weird local version of Russians that speak with a funny accent and not as a separate people in any way. And that is functionally why Russia was created. And when this imperial ideology was being put together, one weird fact that always stands out to me was at the time, Muscovy did not have an intelligentsia of its own. They did not have a single university. So after they were able to conquer Kiev, they were able to conquer their first university, what is now the Kiev Mihila Academy, the Kiev Academy. And it is the scholars who were there, Ukrainian scholars, who kind of first began to form this greater Russian imperial ideology partially as a way to justify their own position as something other than the original Moscovite nobility to create this big empire that would include all the Rus people. So Russia needed to basically uh, conquer Ukraine in order to have the intellectual firepower in order to create this ideology in the first place. And that always blew my mind. Dude, really, really stuns me at all times. We here in the Baltics, we're not even Slavic. <laughs> Estonians are Finno-Greek. They're, they're Finnish. Us and Lithuanians, we're Baltic bros. Meanwhile, hello. Hello, Russia. You want our land constantly. Again, you might not believe this, my dear listeners, but um, when I go to Lithuania, there's a lot of old ladies in the market that don't speak English. And I go to them and I start speaking in Russian, but my first sentence is always, which means I'm from the Baltics and I'm a Latvian. Why? (laughs) Because they're Lithuanian. If you go to a a pub anywhere, anywhere in the post-Soviet sphere, and, and you know that you can speak English with the younger generation, but you, you have to speak Russian with the older generation. Mm-hmm. Everyone will always start by explaining that they are not Russian, that they're from the post-Soviet sphere, and currently they might throw in Putin Huelo as well, just for good measure. That's the issue, because um, one thing that I don't get is that a lot of people in the West think that uh, Ukraine should give up its lands and territory just so there would be peace. That peace is something that we have seen in Bucha today. We have seen in many other places. Why are so many people so interested into this fact that, oh, no, well, just to stop the war, Zelensky should give up that and this. 
you might have a different take on this because you're you're, you're an Amer- you, you've lived in Ukraine, but mm-hmm. you're, you're an American. You understand that culture better than I do. I'm, I'm just Latvian. But for me as a Latvian, I grew up here. This is my land. If someone would say that, hey, Russians have invaded your land, so now you give up all of Latgale so the Russians would stop invading you, I'd rather die. I, I, I don't understand how to explain this because... Uh, Hey, no, this is our land, and we kind of, you know, like our land being our land with our people. What's this idea? Do the people really think that we'd rather trade our self-sufficiency for something, or or do we need to be puppets or or everyone? I, I just don't get the point completely. Well, it's always very easy to ask other people to sacrifice things. So if you're a continent and an ocean away... It's very easy to say, why can't Ukraine just give up X, Y, and Z? Because it's not you having to give anything up. It's somebody else. And that's just such a patronizing, quite frankly, imperialistic attitude to have that it it truly turns my stomach. Uh, part of it, I believe, has to do with they do believe the idea that you know Ukrainians are just like another type of Russian, right? Because that's kind of how it was told when – Older people now heard growing up during the Cold War, like, it's all Russia. It's all just Russia, which the people here very much disagree with. <laughs> I have heard the same thing to a less extent, but like, oh, you're Latvian? Is that Russia? I once walked into a wine store in America. I was looking for Georgian wine specifically because that's what I like. And like, oh, you mean like Russia? And I nearly had a heart attack. Like, say that to a Georgian and walk away with your body intact. It's like, it kind of goes back to that ignorance that I was talking about earlier. There's, they, no one knows anything about what happens east of Germany. And so there's already that built in idea that it's all the same anyway. Where does it matter where the border is? Look, look, I, I actually do have some hope for Americans, specifically Americans. Mm-hmm. You know why? Because Western Europeans, in a way, have always looked at us in, here in the East. With some arrogance. Mm-hmm. It has happened. Italians, nothing against those people at all. You know, because I recently visited Rome and, uh, wow, Rome truly deserves to be called the uh, ancient city. Uh, meanwhile, if someone tries to give you pasta carbonara with sour cream, tell them to go and um, go where the Russian warship went. <laughs> and uh, it's amazing. Rome is great. However, we do deserve some respect, and I believe that actually Americans culturally have way more in common with us here in Eastern Europe than you have the West. Because West, Western Europe is more like the posh guys, you know, they're the hipsters of Europe. Mm-hmm. They're the posh guys who are always the coolest guys. But uh, one thing that, that we always say here in Eastern Europe is that how can you spot an Eastern European? We always in the kitchen have a little plastic bag in which all the other plastic bags are held which you use for for trash or anything else. We have a bag for bags. Is that not a thing everywhere? (laughs) No, that isn't. That's a thing only in Eastern Europe and in America. I've been to both places. Western Europeans who listen to this are now super shocked because, yes, bag for bags is a super Eastern European thing and a super American thing. Who are these uh, people? (laughs) That's what you do with a plastic bag. Yeah, you put it in the bag for bags, right? You're one of us now. One of us, comrade. But like that does not happen in Germany. That does not happen in Italy or Spain or France or Portugal or or UK. They don't have the bag for bags. Savages. Savages, all of them. Pure barbarians. But but there's a thing. And uh, I believe that Western Europe's now growing its balls, so to Mm -hmm. speak. 
Well, I would like them to get tougher or something, but yeah, I'm surprised. I'm surprised uh, of how much they're pulling too. Like, I still have my disappointments, of course, but it's it's better than I thought it would be. I I can definitely say that. See, I would like everyone to go tougher on Ukraine. On the other hand, I kind of want a country to return to when I get back from Ukraine. This whole situation is a fucking mess, to be honest. This mm-hmm. it's a mess, and I don't know how to deal with it. And part of this, I just want to say as well, your uh, this idea of a lot of you know Western Europeans or Americans calling Ukraine Nazis. I don't believe there's any current far right politicians within the Ukrainian Parliament from the far right parties. Look at Italy. Alexander Mussolini has a career. There was an asshole who responded to me about this. He told me, "Oh yeah, Ukrainian neo Nazis only got one point five percent." However, their neo-Nazis, I mean Ukrainian ones, are far worse because they want to exterminate all non-Ukrainians. And I'm like, Ukrainians are Slavs. You're Eastern Slavic peoples. What? I mean... It's absurd. Like, look at France, look at their far-right parties. Look at Italy, look at their far-right parties. Uh, Even Germany, their uh, alternative for Germany is far, far larger than anything that exists in Ukraine. Yet Ukraine is the one. Azov might might be neo-Nazis, but Azov represents less than 1% of the population. All of their parties put together got, yeah, 1.5 to 2% of the vote. And a lot of that is just like old people who automatically think that everything is anti-Soviet is therefore good. <laughs> and, that's, and that's the beginning and end of their logic. I think that a lot of people also ignore the fact that uh, you know, people who don't know our area – they treat Ukrainians as Nazis, but what they don't get is the fact that uh, if Kharkiv, okay, it's Kharkov in Latvian. We're now switching all of our pronunciation. I will still call Chernobyl Chernobyl, yeah, sadly, thing. because that's what I'm used to, but I can call Kiev Kiev. Things you don't know about Kharkov and uh, Mariupol is the fact that those are majority Russian-speaking cities, and I've been to Mariupol. Mm-hmm. Those are not places with Ukrainian nationalists in them. That's why they're being destroyed, because Putin's just angry that the Russian-speaking Ukrainians are not giving up. Guess what? If you look at some of these uh, Ukrainians who might have even seen themselves as like closer to Russia, um, might have people who uh, – we might call them you know, the little Russians, the Ukrainians who kind of think of themselves that way. Even most of them have snapped into place, because even if Russia's the big brother, big brother's trying to murder you, so you try to murder him back. Even when there are people who do feel that cultural connection now, um, like the boxer uh, Usyk, he was very much a uh, Russia-friendly guy, and he joined a territorial defense unit to fight against Russia. Any lingering uh, closeness that people might have felt towards Russia has been completely abused and is not going to be tenable in the future at all, especially now after Bucha. That's the thing, because... Uh- Ukraine has its own issues, like reconciliating the west and the east part of the country. Because Lvov and Kharkiv are two different... How would they say in Odessa? <laughs> in English, that would be two big differences. But but not quite. <laughs> <laughs> but not quite. There are nuances there. Right now, Ukrainian identity is being born. And Zelensky is a national hero. And I'm just really happy that, uh, for one... I know that, well, all the Baltics down with Ukraine, all of us, mm-hmm. we're completely on the same wave. One thing, though, is that I personally believe that after this is over, I think that Zelensky should not run for president. 
I think that hmm. his his push is a bit too large. Like if we look at the bigger picture, because I believe Russia is going to split apart, but the right thing for Zelensky to do when this is over is actually to step down and not not run for office again, because he can only go down from here. Yeah, if he gets reelected, he'll get bogged into everyday corruption and politics and all this stuff, and he'll just tarnish his reputation. There is no way how can he get like he's at a peak. He's at a political peak. He should just say that war is over. I'm retiring. Elect someone else. That's definitely that's definitely his stance. Uh, I don't know if he'd be able to do that. Look, look, I'm a Battletech fan. Okay, I'm a Battletech fan. He's in the position of a Kerensky now. <laughs> I used to be a 40k fan, by the way, because but Games Workshop fucked my game. Imperial Guard forever, by the way. But like. In, in Battletech terms, he now oversees this and he's the leader. However, if he gets reelected in Ukraine, uh, what I didn't like about Zelensky before was that Pyotr Poroshenko wasn't as corrupt. Those accusations were iffy, and there's a lot of sticky stuff that no one remembers right now. I firmly believe that like, if Zelensky goes for office after this is over, no one can beat him. No, none. He's a hero at the right now. If if he wants to run for office after this is over, he will get the office. The real problem is that I think that if he does so, Ukrainians have built their state unity. They've built their national identity. And I think that's more important than... Zelensky has a lot of money. He doesn't need the money. I think that he can ruin this whole unity aspect. And he can fuck it up. And I believe that shouldn't be done. I believe that Zelensky should step down as the military leader and say that I'm retiring, and he'll get a monument built to him. And people will just love him forever for the rest of his life. Zelensky, before the war, he had a problem with not being very good at the whole doing government thing. Uh, he was very inexperienced. He did not know how to handle the like the different power blocks very well. There was a lot of issues with just he could not recruit a very good team. But then the war started, and it turned out the one thing that is very, very useful when there's a war is Charisma. Charisma and the ability to make people feel good. And Zelensky is extremely good at that because he's an actor and a comedian. He knows how to stand up there. As he, I'm going to give him all the credit in the world for his personal bravery, but the precise skill involved here is the ability to communicate and the ability to look like everything is fine. And he's perfect for the situation. Here I'm going to throw a bit of offense to my fellow podcasters and a friend of mine, by the way. There's a podcast called... Uh, the Dangerous History Podcast by C.J. Kilmer. Mm-hmm. And he's libertarian. I love him. Like, he's my friend, honestly. And he can himself the martyr, mate. Again, I hang out with those libertarian podcasts, but he honestly thought and posted that Zelensky couldn't have written his own speech to the United States Congress because it was just too well written. And you know what? I, I, I disagreed with this because... I have seen people say that it must have been like American speechwriters doing I have never heard an American politician's speech as good as what Zelensky is turning out on a daily basis. So no, it's him. It's him. That was my point. CIA would have never written a speech as good as this one. And this is because, you know what? Uh, like I always tell my listeners, for one, I, I'm a Latvian. Out of all the American people who live in America, I feel most closely related to your Native Americans, to your ponies, to your Iroquois, because I too was declared a crusade against. My own people were slaughtered. We are Latvians and everyone in the Baltics here are basically, uh, you know, we just managed to survive to the modern era. 
But um, this whole idea also kind of shows this idea, and I like those shows. Don't please don't don't do anything bad to the guy. Uh, it's just it's just a thing that I need to say out loud so that it reaches a wider audience. The very fact that everything has to have CIA involvement in it undermines our own you know our own agenda. We are not pawns of people. We can make our own decision. Well, if there is one thing that an American believes about the world, it's that America is the ultimate protagonist of the world, and everything that happens is because we do it, either good or bad. And that seems to be one of the big stumbling blocks. Like, I could go off for an eternity. I did a whole podcast episode about it, about why different factions- Well, which one? Which one? Please do name the episode so that people can find it. Yes. So we called it episode 13, Ukrainian Journalism Style Guide and Jacques, where we kind of run down why the far left and the far right both get Ukraine wrong, each for its own reasons. A lot of the far left still, for some reason, believes that Moscow is you know the center of the global leftist international socialism, whereas the right sees Russia as the center of this global reactionary revolution of an ultra-conservative, you know, strongman leader, and they want that as well. But what a lot of it comes down to is Americans see everything as relating to America and not happening independent of America, especially a small, unimportant country like Ukraine. Pro tip, Ukraine is neither small nor unimportant. <laughs> of course. But it's seen that way because all countries are seen that way compared to the greatness of America to the point where we, no one else can make decisions for themselves. If Ukraine is fighting for its independence, it must be because CIA handlers are forcing Zelensky not to surrender. If Ukraine thinks that it is a real country, a Russian will believe that's because the CIA tricked them into thinking that they're a real country when really they're just Russians. So ultimately, everything comes down to Ukraine being an object of history rather than a subject of history, something that things happen to rather than something that does things. And that's where a lot of the problems come from. Taking away agency from anyone that you don't see is like yourself. And that manifests itself in different ways. But you first have to believe that Ukrainians are capable of making their own decisions before you can learn anything or really understand the situation at all outside of uh, gross stereotypes and bizarre conspiracy theories. Well, I have to agree with you there, and I can go in a lot of ways. Like like you said, you're a leftist. For me, I was born in the Soviet Union. I can't be a leftist. But then again, for you and for me, what's a leftist differentiates a lot. Well, it's, it is easier in Ukraine because we have Nestor Makhno to be our shining example. <laughs> I, I suppose... For us, a leftist is the person who wants to take away your cow and put planned economy in place. Because over here in Latvia, in the Baltics, it was the leftist parties who supported Putin. Well, and all the parties in Ukraine that call themselves communist, quote-unquote, are just like arch-conservative uh, KGB puppets that a lot of them exactly. worked for it's- the Russian Orthodox Church and are, in fact, the ones that tried to pass the anti-LGBT laws before Maidan put it to an end to it. So yeah, the communists did that here. That was supposed to be my thesis about the fact that uh, actually uh, left and right doesn't mean what you think it means over here at at all. And I consider myself a centrist, because I want to eliminate bullshit from politics. I don't care about ideologies. I just want, you know, reasonable things done in reasonable time, you know, making things run. 
I believe in regulations and I believe in, in some markets not being totally fair, such as healthcare. Socialized healthcare, sir, is not a socialism. Socialized healthcare is reasonable. Just so you knew, my, my American friends, healthcare is not a market that you can choose. Just say, but that's for another episode. Just throwing out there that I got a, a MRI scan for roughly $50 here, whereas in America, it would have cost me several hundred. So nana nana boo boo. What hurts <laughs> me the most is the fact that uh, if you get carried to ambulance by a helicopter in the United States, you could bankrupt yourself. That scares me. You know how much money I paid for my two master's degrees? Very little. <laughs> Nada. Nada. Uh, because, well, in Latvia, we don't have universal payment for this. I, I literally have to work my ass off because I come from a poor family. I had to be in the top 10% of my class every year, but I managed that. One time I was in the midst of an extreme flu. I was sick to the point of delirium and my coworkers, because I was at work at the time, were trying to call an ambulance for me. I was very insistent that they not do this because I did not have the money to afford an ambulance. I was saying, no, no, please don't do that. I can't afford it until they explained to me, what are you talking about? Or do you think an ambulance costs money? <laughs> wait, wait. I didn't know the ambulance costs money in the United States. Quite expensive. Quite expensive. Yes. Well, you got to be shitting me. Oh, it's it's a it's a horror show. Yeah, so that's why. Uh, okay, do you do you know how much I paid for my ambulance call when I had a ruptured appendix when they literally saved my life? Uh, zero, I assume. <laughs> no, 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 a bit more because I had to stay in the hospital for a few days. Seventy euros, seventy euros in total. I stayed in the hospital here for a full week with the flu. All I did was spend money on medicine. It was quite cheap, but I didn't actually have to spend money to stay in the hospital. That's the thing about the societies here. I know about you, America, and again, I'm not not equipped for this, but this healthcare and education are the two things that I, as a centrist, I can agree with my leftist person here, since those are just more benefits to society in general. If you keep people healthy, they'll produce more. If you keep people educated, they'll produce more. And they'll go to prison less. So in total, if you look at the data, then it's kind of like uh, you can either spend money on welfare or on prisons. And if you spend it on welfare, then you get more money in return. You'd really think that would be the logic, but unfortunately, no. And yeah, that's a large striver for a lot of leftists. And I am not a leftist. <laughs> I am a centrist. Definitely. I believe also in nuclear power. But that's for another time. But yeah, we went we went way off rails here. Let's try to lumble this one up. But uh, maybe a different time. <laughs> I'll come and visit you in Ukraine definitely. Mm -hmm. Thanks for coming here. It's just the fact that, to be honest, after the butcher today, I really, really needed this talk. Mm -hmm. I really needed to vent out a bit. And thank you for being patient with me. I am nowhere near as personal as you are. I, I almost skipped over it saying, but yeah, like. People telling us to telling Ukrainians to just surrender. We now know exactly what it looks like when Russia takes over a place, and it is uh, mass murder, mass rape, mass looting, just a massive frenzy of war crimes. So no, we cannot allow any territory to be given up to Russia. It's what's been happening in Donbass to a lower level for the last eight years in the different prison camps there. Uh, just the scenes of, of of people who are released from being tortured. I like the the Russian world is one of torture and abuse and pain, and the fewer people, the fewer Ukrainians specifically, have to live under that system, the better. Thank you, Anthony. Thank you a lot. 
You are way more competent in all this all this than I am. You sound more competent, definitely. No, I've I've been listening to your podcast, you know, pretty much since episode like four or something. It's been of great use to me. So so if anything that I can help you out with anytime. Look, look, man, all I hope is that I'm not a pile of trash. That's all I can hope for. <laughs> because honestly speaking, I don't have Joe Rogan's audience. I don't have anything. I don't have any anyone any big corpse backing me up and I've been told that I'm a CIA shell. And I'm like, yes, please, I would like to but no Bitcoin for Christops. No Bitcoin for Christops. <sighs> yeah, what we do? We do our job. We do our job well. And uh, see you in Ukraine. See you. Slava Ukraine. Orum Slava. Thank you for listening to The Eastern Border Show. If you have any questions or comments, go to our website, theeasternborder.lv, and leave a comment there. Or email us at theeasternborder at gmail.com. We'll be sure to answer. You can also follow us on social media and contact us there. If you enjoyed this episode, then leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and tell your friends about us. It really helps us grow the show. And remember, happiness is mandatory. Happiness is mandatory.